Did you know I was needing raising from the dead today? Even Sabbath, we can all feel a little like Lazarus, can we? I'll begin uh, today with a, uh, an introduction from the Revelator. John writes in Revelation 1, beginning in verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, <clears throat> and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash across his chest. In ancient Rome, Victories in battle were commemorated on arches that were placed upon the roads. Arches have a long, long history in the empire. Titus, the general in charge of the sacking of Jerusalem in 70 CE, he has a huge arch that's been unearthed in Rome right now. And one of the reliefs, what, what, if, you, if you picture them, the arches all have these kind of squares on them that are all about this big, and it commemorates all the steps of the victory all the way through. And on one of those squares on Titus's arch, you see the soldiers carrying the menorah, or the lampstand, out of the temple, just before the temple was destroyed. Our study today will begin with a vision showing the Son of Man, the God to come, walking among seven golden lampstands. He calls John to write what he sees and send it to the seven churches which are in ancient Asia Minor. One thing that he is emphasizing is that probably by the time that he wrote this, Jerusalem has been sacked. And yes, indeed, the, the menorah was carried off, the light was carried out of the temple, if you will. But what he's, what, the reason he starts this way is that he wants to make clear that the light is still in the midst of God's people. Amen. The light is still there. He still walks this God of heaven. He's not left his people to fend for themselves or endure history for us, the future for them, but history for us he does not want us to know or to even think that we endure without his light. He still walks among the churches, keeping his promise. In Leviticus, he said, I will place my dwelling in your midst and I shall not abhor you. I will walk among you. I will be your God and you shall be my people. So it was the Shekinah, if you will, that Hebrew word for the light of glory, the fiery cloud that led Israel in the Exodus. Now it is the Son of Man with his eyes blazing with the Shekinah, a face shining like the sun that is still light among the lampstands, still guiding the course of his people. He's asked, John is asked to write to the seven churches. These churches really did exist, all of them did. The message was actually to these churches while being prophetic for all of those churches to come in the future. The message was 
written to seven individual, actual, real churches, the prophecy is for the church, which exists forever, and which we're promised not even the gates of hell will prevail against. In our first vision, you see, you will see coming up in, our, in the first church in Ephesus, you'll see that Jesus is holding seven stars in his hand. The ancients believed that stars actually directed human destiny. Astrology has always been popular. It's always been around. So Jesus holding these stars amounts to him controlling their destiny. John is saying, I'm not, uh, John is saying, God is saying, I'm not gonna leave it to the position of the stars. He holds the stars, which means he holds it in, our, in his hands. He holds us, the church, the light of the church, the message of the church, the power of the church, if you will, he holds in his hands. So he says, now write what you've seen, what is and what is to take place after this. So real quick, just to, just to note, Dr. Pauline, uh, John Pauline would point out to us in, in Revelation is make no mistake, is this message just to those churches? And the answer is no. See, because some could say, why are you reading a message that was written to a church 2,000 years ago? It's because it wasn't written just to that little church in Ephesus. Actually, it was a big church in Ephesus. It was written to all of us. Two reasons, one, the number seven. If you're encountering the book of Revelation and you encounter the number seven anywhere, always remember you are looking at God's number. God has a couple of numbers in seven. One of them in, in Revelation, one of them is seven. The other is 12 and multiples of 12 and multiples of seven. Whenever you see seven, it is a completeness, it is a wholeness, and it's a hearken back to creation. Everything was finished after seven days. It's a totality, it's a perfection. The verses say so at the end also of each of the letters, let anyone who hears listen to what the Son says to the churches, to what the Spirit says to the churches. If it was only written for those members sitting in, in Ephesus, it wouldn't have told us to listen to their message, amen? So we can't take the number of churches too literally. There were many more churches than just seven. Not mentioning, not mentioning Colossae and Hierapolis, both that were mentioned earlier than this writing. Those existed too. He picked these seven because they had certain qualities and certain things that they were struggling with at the time that we will all struggle with throughout the future, the history and the future of the church. Something to light our way, something to guide our way, to know that somebody else has walked before us that should bring us comfort. So the number represents the entire church. The letters are for the entire church. I always like to point out that the letters all come in the same format. It, it follows the format of an ancient letter. If you read any ancient letter written at this time, it would all follow this format. Number one is a greeting to the angel. And the angel represents the message, the message of that church. Angelos means message, that the angel is a messenger. So it's a greeting to the angel. A picture of Jesus is given, 
An exhortation is given. I know your works. I like this. I like what you're doing. This is good. And then there's also a what? A rebuke. While I may like this, I'm not real wild about this. There's a consequence of not overcoming or changing in light of the message that's being given. There's a promise to the overcomer. And then there's an appeal to what? To hear the Spirit. All seven of them have this message with three exceptions. Two churches have no rebuke. Jesus has nothing bad to say about Philadelphia and Smyrna. Absolutely nothing. And unfortunately, there is one church that has no exhortation. Jesus has nothing good to say about Laodicea. What happens is the churches seem to degenerate while all around the enemies of God seem to get stronger. First half of history, the faithful are in the majority. The last half of church history, the faithful are in the minority. Finally, the Lord has nothing good to say about her at all. God's warnings become more severe as the church goes on. It goes from I will come, as we will read today, to I will spew you out. So why this degeneration? Why does the church seem to begin to disintegrate over our past history and into the future? Well, I have a, a way to approach it. And to approach it, I would approach it in the theme of what our uh, sermon series is. But we preach Christ what? Crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block. And to Gentiles or to the world, what? Foolishness. See, I have a theory. There are threads and thoughts, why? And it all comes down to this. It all comes down to power. I think that I I don't need to uh, review too much as to what we've learned about what what the cross's power is, amen? of what it is, of how it should be uh, held, how it should be yielded, whether or not it should be used on somebody else. You with me? We talked about that, the power under versus power over, the difference between the power of the kingdom of heaven, which by the way, in the kingdom of heaven, the only power that, that will get you anywhere is the power of the cross, the power of Jesus. The power over only, and the only power worth anything in the kingdom of this world is is the power over. Might makes what? Might makes right. And remember that that we'll eventually get there. Eventually we're going to be introduced to how the power is yielded in the church in this history. Why the degeneration of the history? It's because what the church begins to do with her power And whether or not we're using the power of the cross as we should be using it. Because it has been given to us. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus says, and I give it to you. Go ye therefore. Right? It's been given to us. So the history of the church from Ephesus all the way to Revelation, I believe, 
The reason that she degenerates as a church, a church of the living God, by the way, she doesn't degenerate as another kind of church. She gets better at becoming another kind of church. Because we're told there will eventually be another church, a church that worships not uh, the lamb that was slain, not the one that lives by the power under of the cross, but the power over of empire. We always remember, always remember that in the end, this final end, if you will, between good and evil will not be between the church and the world. It will be between two churches, one that claims to worship God, both that claim to worship God, but only one is ruled over with the power of the cross, ruled over by the lamb that was slain. The other one's ruled over by the dragon and a couple of beasts. So that's what we'll get to. It's important to get this right. Prophecy and time. You know, there's a certain age, if you will, or uh, yeah, a certain age of Adventist who comes to me sometimes and says, your sermon was very timely today. And they usually mean one of two things. It's timely as, um, I, I'm, I'm glad that you, that you uh, talked about this because we're dealing with that, we're struggling with that. <clears throat> but yet on the other hand, sometimes <clears throat> when, they, excuse me, when they say to me it was timely, it means I liked what you said today. It's about time you said what you said today. I like the way that millennials put it. You hit a home run with a millennial with young people when they come to you and say it was relevant. So I'm hoping that this is relevant. I'm hoping that looking back at our history and prophecy is. Because you have to remember, I've already been through the seven churches. It's been four years, okay? And I wanna let you know this, is that when I went through them before, I had some people wanting me to make it timely. In other words, they wanted a little bit more of the Adventist traditional view of the seven churches. I didn't spend a lot of time on that last time. This time I will, because this time I believe that it truly is timely. Remember the Adventist view, and by the way, not, it's not exclusively an Adventist view, but a very Protestant view, that the seven churches also represent seven eras of Christianity, if you will sometimes 100, two, 300 year periods, from 34 AD all the way to today, and then beyond. So we will spend a little time talking about the eras, and to me it's very important. We also won't go through all seven of them. There are three churches that I wanna look at because I believe that their time, what they were struggling with, what Jesus gave them in order to overcome what was happening, and more importantly, their time in history, where it was, speaks volumes to us today. And if I could borrow the term from my millennial brothers and sisters, I believe it's relevant extremely relevant, extremely timely as to what we see happening out there. And ask the question, is the church helping or is she hurting? Are we contributing to what's happening or are we comforting? That's what I wanna get to. So usually when I preach to the seven churches, 
I titled the one at Ephesus, The Church Begins to Lose. And that's why I titled what I did today, The Stumbling Block of Losing. The Stumbling Block of Losing. John says this, John says, Jesus says this, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in what? In his right hand, in the hand of power, if you will. He has all the church in his power, holds the seven stars in his right hand, and walks among the golden lampstand. Every, every church gets a picture of Jesus, I said. It usually correlates with what they need. They need to know that he is still with them. That's, a, that's incredible. Less than 100 years, or actually in the era from the time that he went back to heaven, he has to remind them that he is still walking with them. If you think about it, it's founded on these, these 12 guys, these, these 12 guys that watched him go back into heaven, and even though he taught them and told them, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, he still has to come back and tell them that he's with them. I love when somebody has gone through already what I've gone through. Even the disciples needed to be reminded that he is here. Because the disciples lived in a world that was uh, constantly trying to remind them that he wasn't. I know your works, Jesus says to Ephesus, your toil and your patient endurance. I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. You've tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and have found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for the sake of my name, and that you have not grown weary. I know. I think that's my favorite part of this. People immediately begin to concentrate on what the church is doing right and what he commends them for. And it all sounds pretty good, doesn't it? They're enduring patiently. They're bearing up for the sake of his name. They are cleansing the, the church of heresy and doctrinal impurity. No rebuke yet, by the way. All good stuff, right? But my favorite part is Jesus says, I know. I know your works, and I'm walking among you anyway. I like that. I used to always read the, the uh, Jewish prayer of priestly blessing. You know, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord look down upon you. The Lord's face shine upon you. And then what? And give you what? Give you peace. I always like what Don Pate used to say. He goes, that the Lord look down on you, look through and through. Know you like no other knows you. And then give you peace anyway. I know you. John's going to develop this in his gospel, which he'll write quite a few years after this vision. But he'll develop this, I know you and I still walk among you. No need to hold back, by the way, in your relationship with God. If you're trying to hide a sin from him, it's, it's useless, isn't it? What does he want you to do with it? Don't hold back, bring it out, bring it into the light. Let the light of the sun destroy it, cleanse it, purify it. Don't hold back. I know, he says. He already knows and still loves us. No toleration for evil, Ephesus has. They test apostles' claims. 
Not just, not just people that have an opinion in class, not just people that have an opinion in Sabbath school, people who claim to be apostles, church planters, people that are out doing the same work as Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and those guys, and Paul, who used to be Saul. These are, these are guys that are not just uh, having uh, you know, a, a difference of opinion in a class somewhere. They're planting whole churches based on their opinions, based on their doctrine. And this church is standing up to them. They're enduring with patience. They're bearing up. They're persevering. It sounds like they've already overcome. Sounds like it, doesn't it? So what kind of church is this? What kind of church is it? And remember, it's the very first church. It has disciples in it. By the way, John will spend his final years as elder and pastor or bishop, if you will, of the Ephesus church. He will go from Patmos to Ephesus. It's Ephesus where he writes his gospel. So what kind of church is this? It's a special church. Well, so far, it's a doctrinally pure church, isn't it? It has the right what? It has the right doctrine. It has the right message. You can't tell someone else that their message is wrong if yours is what? Isn't right. Amen? It's a doctrinally pure church. One who's intent on sound doctrine. One who's intent on keeping the message pure. Jesus commends them for this. He commends them for it. He doesn't condemn, he doesn't condemn them for it. He commends them for it. But Remember last week how powerful the word but is? He says, but I have this what? I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. This is a church, though doctrinally sound, has a problem with what? Has a problem with love. Is it possible to appear obedient without, be lo- without being loving? Is it, a, is it possible to appear that you have the right information and the right message without being what? Without being loving. Unfortunately, it is possible. And the church is attempting to do that right off the bat. In other words, the church is attempting to do what Israel failed at for 6,000 years. There are many biblical examples. By the way, did Jesus ever rebuke anybody for their obedience to the law? No. As a matter of fact, he said, you're going to be better than the best, he told his disciples. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees who were the best of the best. He said, you'll be better than them. Why? Because they'll fulfill the law. They won't just keep it. They'll fulfill it. How? By being what? By being love. See, but I would would like to say that this isn't Ephesus' problem. Ephesus' problem is not that they are not loving, okay? Love God, love your neighbor, right? And I don't think their problem is necessarily that they're not loving God. They've forgotten their first love, which is what? That he loves them. That's what they've forgotten. 
See, the first love is, is not the love that you had at first. Sometimes we paint the, the picture of Ephesus. To me, we paint it like uh, what, what, what has happened is, is that you've been in love long enough, now the fire has kind of gone out. We, we, we liken it to a marriage that no longer has passion in it. That isn't what's going on at all. The first love is always God's love for us. Our love for God is second. Our love for each other is second slash third. Ephesus has a problem with what? They've forgotten that God loves them. If you're in prayer meeting, you understand why, don't you? Remember we talked about the disciples' picture of the Father, right? When we begin to study the Trinity in John 14 and we begin to break through all of that, it was, their, it was their picture of their relationship with the Father. This love-hate relationship that their fathers and their grandfathers had, you know, with this God that delivered them out of Egypt. Thousands and thousands of years. Not trusting that the Father did what? That the Father loved them. Jesus says, I've came, I came to disabuse you of the notion that God never loved you or that God only loves you when you're obedient or that God only loves you when you're not an idolatry. I'm here to disabuse you of that. God has always loved you. See, this is where we could be confused if we think we can love and not be obedient or be obedient and not love. Jesus was asked by a lawyer who was trying to trick him, by the way, what was the greatest commandment? Jesus doesn't go to Exodus 20. He didn't even go to a commandment. He goes to Deuteronomy and he goes to Leviticus. And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and the greatest, right, commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang the entire law and the prophets. Wherever our obedience stems from, it has to hang on these two fulfillments. That we will love God and that we will what? That we will love each other. Love of God and love of neighbor. This, pro this church has a problem with not loving God, but the problem of the love of God. And by the way, if, if you have a problem with the first love, then what is going to be wrong with your next love? It's going to be fundamentally what? Fundamentally flawed, right? If we love God because he first loved us, but we don't necessarily or are not 100% sure that he really does love us, depending on what voice we happen to be listening to, depending on where in the Old Testament we happen to be reading, then any of the love that comes after this will be fundamentally flawed. And all of our obedience and all of our love might as well then be disobedience. Remember, we talked about it a couple weeks ago. The stumbling block of being good. Human beings are the only ones that can sin while being good. According to the Bible, if it's not love, it's not obedience. Israel thought they could. Israel's the example. So here's the thing. 
There are only a handful of men and women in that 6,000 year history who came to the conclusion in and of themselves that God loved them. And they were the only ones that had nearly a face-to-face relationship with him. The rest of Israel told those people, you go talk to him. So no matter how hard they tried, no matter what they wanted to do, at best, at best, they could only be slaves. And let me tell you this, that even to an all-loving, all-knowing, omniscient God, slavery is bad. He didn't want it. The one person, the one, the one God, the one being that could ask for it and ask for it hands down said, that's not what I want. I don't want slaves. I want husbands and wives. I want children. And all of the benefits and advantages that being a, a, a husband and wife and children, being part of the family, being part of the inheritance brings. He didn't want slaves. See, Israel's problem before the exile was no love, but which love? Before the exile, they, they are, um, what are they doing? You know, why did they get hauled into the, to exile? We concentrate mostly on idolatry. You talked, Miriam, you had a great comment about idolatry today. They talked about the idolatry of Israel, is why they were hauled into captivity. And it wasn't just the idolatry. Uh, you know, there were all kinds of people that were worshiping idols. Israel's problem was that they had made the temple an idolatry also. They were, they were worshiping the idols, but they were also worshiping God and following, adhering completely to what the law says you should do. And also they were living in the land. They couldn't be told that they were doing anything wrong. They couldn't be told that they were not worshiping God because they still had all of the advantages of being his people. They had the temple and they had the land. And I can tell you that there is one thing though that bothered him most of all is that in all of that, They weren't taking care of the most vulnerable. They weren't taking care of the marginalized, the widow, the orphan. Isaiah, who's a prophet before the exile, tells them, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Right before that is, do justice. Stand up for somebody. So Jeremiah put it this way, he says, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a what? Very important, your love as a what? Your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in land not sown. Always remember when the prophet mentions the wilderness, the wilderness was God and his bride's honeymoon. It was when they first got together. Moses brings, uh, brings her out of Egypt. He meets them at Sinai. He meets them in the wilderness. They spend 40 years together, his brand new bride. This is their honeymoon. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate were held What? All who ate were held guilty. Disaster became, uh, became upon them, says the Lord. 
Thus says the Lord, what wrong did your ancestors find in me? That they went far from me, that they went after worthless things and became worthless themselves. I love that. What fault did they find with me? I'll tell you what fault they found with him. They forgot that he loved them. But what's very, very important is that they were forcing him to try to love them through the love of Moses or any other intercessor. And love doesn't work that way. The fault didn't lie with me, he said. If you'd have come up the mountain that day, I would have told you myself. I love you. Do I love Moses? Yes. Do I love Moses more than you? No. It's just that Moses is up here experiencing it. A Moses is up here walking with me and talking with me. The message to any believer that comes after this is that if, no matter what you believe, believe him or not, pagan or not, doesn't matter what you believe, he still wants you to walk and talk with him. And by the way, you walk and talk with him, chances are pretty good you just might fall in love with him. What wrong did they find in me? Be appalled, O Evans, at this. Be shocked, be utter desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living what? The fountain of living water, and dug out cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that can hold no water. What would a cracked cistern be? Think about this. And also think about it in terms of what we've studied before in the Gospel of John. And I'll tell you why the Gospel of John, uh, a little later, is going to play such an important part in this, okay? But these cisterns, these cracked cisterns, there were some cisterns in the wedding at Cana that weren't cracked, but they were holding on to water that was used for uh, purifying and cleansing. It, it, was, it was the symbol of a dead religion. They thought that they could please God by walking through steps of, of keeping clean and purifying themselves before they ate. Jesus takes that water and turns it to wine, symbolizing blood, symbolizing forgiveness of sin, something real, not worrying about whether or not you're eating with unclean hands, but worrying whether or not your heart is unclean because of your sin. A real religion, a living religion, living water. The cracked cistern can hold no what? Not just water, it can hold no living water. A people that, that will adhere to, to obedience to law on tablets or on stone and still be unloving is a cracked cistern. It holds no living water. Look what he says here. Is Israel a what? Is Israel a slave? Is he a home-born servant? What's the answer to that? No. They were supposed to yell out, no, we're not. You saved us. You rescued us from slavery. Now the answer comes back then. Why are you plunder then? He's asking them to examine their relationship with him. It isn't just that they've chosen to, to be idolatrous. It isn't just that they've chosen to cheat on him, if you will, to play the harlot, if you will. It isn't that they just chose to do that. It's the reason in which they did it. They didn't think they could trust him. 
They didn't believe that he loved them. Why? They never spent any time with him. They spent a lot of time in his tablets and his law, but they spent zero time with him. So I, I know that I, on the surface, it, it seems like disobedience, uh, simple disobedience, if you will. But he said, long ago, I broke your yoke. I tore off your bonds. But you said, I will not serve. For on every hill and under every tree, you have lain down as a harlot. And I know, like I said, it, this looks like simple disobedience. But what is really going on, what is all, uh, this all about, is no first love. Just remember that that whole passage began in their honeymoon. What did he try to remind them of before, before he pointed out to them what has happened? He tried to remind them that he loves them. I heard your cries of slavery and bondage and I came down. Sent Moses to bring him, bring him to the mountain, bring him here, he said. They lost their first love. Forgetting God's love came first. Ephesus is attempting the same thing. This is the church's continued degeneration and it begins with her. To nearly a whole history of trying to be obedient to a God they don't believe loves them, um, how could they even then be capable of loving each other? Our inability to be able to love and forgive probably stems from the fact that we're not 100% sure that God loves us first. So what'll happen, you'll see, is the church will say, well, you know what? If love really doesn't seem to work, maybe we can just sidestep it. Make it, maybe we can just make it oh, allegorical. It just takes too long. And you know what? It doesn't seem like it's enough. Just loving as God has loved me is fulfillment of the law. That just doesn't seem like it's enough. And it doesn't seem like that's what God would accept from us. They just can't believe that a simple act of love would fulfill all the law and the prophets if they would just do it. So the church then will begin to use the opposite of love. They'll begin to opt for slavery. The slavery will look pretty. It'll have words like obedience stamped on it. It'll have, it'll have all of the Ten Commandments stamped on it. And by the way, on top of that, it'll have a cross stamped on it also. It looks good. The slavery looks good. And yes, it is safe. But pretty soon, the slavery will require fear and coercion to keep the slaves in line. It will require deception and power and money. All that love is not. And it's history that gets us to the point to where then Jesus can say nothing good about her church because the church eventually just locks him out. 
Because love takes too long. Love can't be what you say it is. Why? Because about 2,000 years ago, we lost our first love. I love what he tells them, though. Remember from where you have what? Remember from where you have fallen. Repent. Do the works you did at first. If not, I'll come to you. Remove your lampstand from its place unless you what? Unless you repent. If the church doesn't begin to, and I hate using the word sincere because sincerity really has nothing to do with it. I'm just saying, if the church will, will continue not to remember that God loves them and stand firm in that and only that, then I'm sorry, Jesus says. My presence, the lamp, my presence will be taken from you. And what's amazing is that by the time that Laodicea comes, he didn't come and take the lamp away. The church locked him and the lamp out. He didn't even have to do this. We put out the lamp. But I love what he says, remember from where you have fallen, it's right there. He says, it's right there. Remember Moses told them, There's, you know, I, 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 I give to you today life and death. You don't have to go up to heaven. You don't have to perform uh, mental and emotional and, and religious gymnastics to get it done. You don't have to go up there to get it. You don't have to dig your way down to hell and go through all kinds of trial and tribulation to get it. Moses says, it's right there. It's right here. Choose life. Yeah. He tells Ephesus, he tells the church, it's always right there. It's like on a shelf, it's just right there. I've always, you know, been to a lot of counselors, but, uh, you know, a good counselor will get you to remember your honeymoon, will get you to remember where you've come from and remind you that it's right there. It's right there. Our motive for doing something good can actually make a good deed bad. Jesus does not condemn us, I mean, does not commend us for good without love. We get no points for purity without love, for remaining pure. So does love fundamentally change how these good works are carried out? Do they look differently from the outside? Sure they do. Selfishness co-ops good for self's means and advantage. Might and right for selfish means. In other words, the ends will always justify the means. When the church begins to trade love for other things, begins to trade love for slavery, the end will always justify the means. The church loses love at the very beginning and it only gets worse. The state of humanity on the planet worsens. And did you ever think that maybe the reason that the world is getting worse is because the church is getting worse too? I've been reading the newsletter. I've been kind of hooked on Dr. Abraham Heschel lately. Been uh, studying. We've been doing it in the newsletter on, on his book on the Sabbath. His opening to his book, God in Search of Man, though, is, is what I'd like to read from you now. You remember he wrote this in the late 60s. 
And he says this, it is customary to blame secular science and anti-religious philosophy for the eclipse of religion in modern society. It would be more honest to blame religion for its own defeats. Religion declined not because it was refuted, but because it became irrelevant. There's our word, millennials. There's our word. It's because it became untimely. It became irrelevant, dull, oppressive, insipid. Listen to this. When faith is completely replaced by creed, when worship is replaced by discipline, when love is replaced by habit, when the crisis of today is ignored because of the splendor of the past, when faith becomes an heirloom rather than a living fountain, when religion speaks only in the name of authority rather than the voice of compassion, the message becomes meaningless. Not bad for a rabbi, huh? See, we have to remember that Ephesus, its time frame, I told you I'd spend just a, just a couple minutes on its time frame, is the church from 34 AD up to about 110 AD. If you've been with us in prayer meeting, it's about the time that John writes his gospel. And what did we learn in prayer meeting? What is the one thing that Jesus wanted them to know when he writes his gospel? He gives them a brand new picture and relationship with the Father. In the midst of that prayer and everything else, he says, on that day you'll ask in my name, I do not say to you that I'll ask the Father on your behalf. See, they're thinking that when he said that, he would, that you could ask things in his name, they're thinking, good, because every time I go to him, I don't know what angry God I'm gonna get. But Jesus says, I won't ask uh, uh, on your behalf. I don't have to, because the Father himself, what? loves you. See, what happened to the church? After 34 AD and a few years later, the Council of Jerusalem, they begin to argue about this very thing. The purity, the doctrinal purity of the church, man, it's incredible that it only took a few years for the doctrinal purity of the church to become the argument. Whether or not a Gentile has to be circumcised before they could be baptized. That's an argument about doctrinal purity, is it not? And at the beginning of the church, Peter, very Peter, stands up and says, why are we looking to burden these people with a burden that none of us have been able to carry? And why? Because every one of them had been carrying the burden of not sure whether or not God loves them. Especially Peter. Peter always wanted to be loved by God. But he was a working man, he was a fisherman, he had a temper. It was the religious, self-pious people that told him, you're not loved by God, if you were, you'd be rich like me, you'd have knowledge like me. You could walk into the temple and, 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 and debate, you could walk into the temple and preach and, and you could pray like I do. And you could keep the law like I do. So it was the message that Jesus gave these poor, hard-working disciples who'd been told all the while by the religion of the day that they didn't belong. And he stands up and he says, guys, I've carried that burden my whole life. My father carried that burden. My grandfather carried that burden. And he says, and Jesus, when he was here, 
We didn't even notice that they won't even, allow, they won't even uh, stoop over to help us. A Pharisee will tell you what your sin is, but a Pharisee will not help you with it. Man, what a revolutionary thing. The first doctrinal purity argument, and they decide not to go with what's written in the law. They decide to go with what the Holy Spirit is telling them. And the Spirit is falling on these Gentiles, which means that God loves them even before they're circumcised. And that's all they needed to know. They ended the meeting. The general conference session ended with not one more doctrinal point. It actually ended with minus a doctrinal point. It was 27 instead of 28. Oh, I'm gonna get the, I'm gonna get it for that. <laughs> but that happens in the 30s or the 40s, say or so. But then all of a sudden, when you get to about 110, the church has forgotten that. So John says, I think they need some more light. And he writes his gospel. And he revolutionizes the ministry by saying, guys, the Father's always loved you. If you need proof, Jesus said, look at me. If you believe that I love you, Jesus said, then you can believe that the Father loves you. And you can believe that the Spirit will fall on you. You can believe that you always have me. Just think of what he did in the Gospel of John that is not quite necessarily reported in the other Gospels. He reaches out to the people that the church of doctrinal purity has left out. Paralytics. Paralytics have been told, God must be really angry with you. You've been paralyzed 38 years? I don't know what sin you committed, buddy, but I'm glad I never did it. Samaritans hated each other for centuries. Jesus said, doesn't matter the mountain, doesn't matter the form. You and I, Jew and Samaritan, one day we'll worship together in spirit and in truth. Touching lepers, bringing the gospel to them. Jesus says plainly, the Father himself loves you. Gospel of John is just given as a reminder at this time about 100 to 110. The power of the cross. It has all the power behind it. Love is beyond the power that we can even imagine. So let's note this as he continues to walk amongst the lampstands. Let's open the door. Let's allow him to light our lamp and to walk and talk among us. And I'm so glad that we get to do it together. Thanks for hanging in there. <laughs>